Hello, faithful listener. I wanted to give you a heads up that Blick Art Supply does have even more oil paint on sale this week. They have their Utrecht Artist Oil Paints up to 65% off. So if you're a fan of the Utrecht Artist Oils, now is a great time to stock up. As always, I want to remind you to please navigate to Blick using our affiliate link, which is, of course, MessyStudioPodcast.com slash Blick. And as always, I'm going to remind you to bookmark that link. That makes it super easy. You just use your bookmark and then you're supporting the Messy Studio podcast because when you use our affiliate link, it goes straight through to the regular Blick website. Everything works and functions the same. But when you do that, Blick will donate 10% of your purchase to the Messy Studio podcast. It's easy, it's effortless, and it is a great way to support the podcast. So once again, that affiliate link is MessyStudioPodcast.com slash Blick. That's all for now. On with the show. Hello and welcome to the Messy Studio with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Techner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. On today's episode, we are talking about who's in the studio. When an artist creates, the people that the artist imagines viewing the work often are unseen presences in the studio. When we are deeply involved in our work, these may fade away, but they tend to reappear when we are uncertain or involved in self-critique. A legitimate and important part of evaluating our work is trying to see the work through someone else's eyes. But who are these viewers exactly? Who are we creating art for besides ourselves? Today we talk about those who view our work, how we imagine them, and how much power we give them. With me as always is Rebecca Kroll. Hello everyone. So most artists um, will say that they do their work mainly for themselves. Um, that it's, you know, this compulsive inner drive and that they work the way they do because it feels right to them. It's them, you know. And, and if people like their work, fine. But, but a basic aspect of art is communication. I mean, we do want to give a viewer something to respond to, get involved with. Um, we want people looking at our work to have some kind of thought or emotion when they respond to it. So this visual communication that we're doing is a kind of conversation. But when we're, you know, when we're not there with our viewers, it can seem pretty one-sided. And so we're left with these sort of imaginary viewers and and their response um, and that's what we kind of want to talk about today. As you said, who are they? <laughs> and and why why do we give them uh, a lot of words to say when really, you know, those are our own imagination. So, which the words can be positive or negative, but it's, it's kind of odd that we have these imaginary friends in the studio, <laughs> friends or enemies. Um, so, along with that idea that we create art for ourselves and we're you know, aware to some extent of the people that are going to be looking at it, there's also that economic reality because for a lot of artists, um, you know, we, we are looking for people that are going to like our work enough, appreciate it enough to, to buy it. Um, and this, this is sort of a classic conundrum or balancing act for a lot of artists who do sell their work so one part of your brain says, I'm doing this for myself, for my own reasons. And then the other part of your brain is saying, but I also wanted to speak to someone else enough 
to have them want it, make a sale. So it, it that can be a little odd and a little frustrating. Um, so, you know, if you're constantly thinking when you're creating the work about selling it, I think it's kind of a problem because whoever you're imagining as this viewer can start to direct the show and, and, and you can lose touch with what, what you're doing, your sincere, your sincerity, your authenticity. Um, I, I mean, basically, we all, I think, recognize that trying to please other people isn't really a very creative way to go. Um, that said, um, you know, in a marketing sense, and I know you'll agree with this, it's, it's good marketing advice to imagine at least your ideal audience and having some general idea of who you want to appreciate your work um, helps you kind of know where to p- target where you want it to go, say, which gallery or what situation. Um, and, you know, it can also kind of feel encouraging to imagine this sort of ideal audience that's that's loving your work. Right. Well, and in a marketing sense, it's something that, that is typical marketing advice is to uh, describe this person and and have it be not a a generic group of people, but describe Mm -hmm. a person in detail uh, who who you are speaking to. Right, right. And and I think imagining that person with you in the studio and, you know, supporting what you do and being very interested, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty encouraging. So, um, and, you know, I, off and on during the podcast, we have advised that in in a sense, you are making work for yourself in that the advice to make the very best work that you want to do, that you can do, and then um, and then find, you know, where it's going to end up. And so you it starts with the work and um, and then, you know, finding a place finding a situation in which other people, um, you know, will, will appreciate it is, is a big step. So I, I think thinking of your work first, primarily as, you know, your, your authentic expression means it's going to feel right to you and it's probably going to communicate well to other people. So I think that's, that's just sort of basic ground rule <laughs> uh, for how to deal with outside influences on your work. But I would say all that advice uh, doesn't really vanish those imaginary, excuse me, imaginary and invisible people who may visit you in the studio. (laughs) Um, And I think they do serve a role because it's important to imagine how other people may be seeing your work. It's, it's part of self-critique. So you're trying to think what, you know, what mood am I conveying? Is there a good visual pathway? You know, is there a good composition? All those kinds of things. And the artists do different things to try to gain the perspective of another set of eyes. One, obviously, bringing real eyes into the studio, bringing in a friend or somebody you trust to have a look. Um, and there's other things that People do like looking at their work in a mirror, which gives you a different perspective. Everything's reversed, but things can pop out at you that aren't working. Um, the advice of 
you know, putting something aside for a few days if if you're not sure about it, um, things like that, you know, getting some distance on it, putting it up in your house is one thing a lot of artists do so that, you know, it can be seen as, as part of normal life and how does it how does it come across. But there is still all that that difficulty of trying to imagine what somebody else is going to see. Um, even if you clearly imagine the viewer, you know, you really can't see through somebody else's eyes. You can't through somebody see through somebody else's eyes that you're sitting right next to, you know. So this kind of amorphous presence that I think a lot of people feel in the studio, like sort of aware that pe- people, just like vague people, are going to be looking at your work and what I notice is there's sort of a shifting character to character to this vague presence, this kind of conglomerate person, and they, however we are thinking of them, in the moment is a reflection of our own state of mind. So, if we're feeling good about the work, yeah, this is going really well. I like what's happening here. Um, then these unseen people tend to be benevolent and, you know, happy for us and things like that. If you're struggling and you're going through some kind of rough time, then they take on a little bit darker cast, you know, they're like not so happy, um, critical, skeptical, whatever. Um, and, you know, so it's always, I think, harder to deal with the this vague presence of people and the your imaginary viewers if you're feeling that it's a negative situation. Um, and, you know, it's odd because sometimes the things that you imagine other people will think about your work are not even, well, they're sort of things that you learned here or there, um, bits of art advice, kind of art rules and things, and and they need to be questioned. They may not fit you at all, um, but you might be assuming that the rules um, affect the people who view your work. If I could explain that a little bit. Let's say, I, I know I've used this example before because it's one that kind of irks me, but there's an art rule, don't use black paint straight from the tube. Like there's something wrong with, I know this is like, ah, drives me nuts. I do this, you know, I, I mean, I use black from the tube. So right, you've mentioned that before. If you have something like that in your head and there's a million of these kind of rules, you may think that, you know, people don't like paintings with black paint straight from the tube. I mean, that you can translate it that way. And and so your imaginary viewer doesn't like the fact that you're using black straight from the tube. <laughs> and in truth, the way that you handle any of these rules, the way you interpret them, the way you break them... Um, you know that's that's something between you and the and the painting. You're going to make the painting work, and so likely very few of your viewers will be thinking about these art rules when they look at your work, but they can get in your head, and and they may come at you in the form of, you know, some teacher or somebody told you this, or you read this, and and it's like sitting there with you in the studio. <laughs> And, you know, like so many of these things, it's kind of bringing awareness to it and saying, what, you know, that's kind of nuts. I can ignore that. Um, I I have a quote from the painter Philip Guston, because this is kind of a famous quote that he said, um, 
when you're in the studio painting, there are a lot of people in there with you. Your teachers, friends, uh, painters from history, critics. And then he said, and one by one, if you're really painting, they walk out. Okay. And he ended the quote by saying, um, and if you're really painting, you walk out. So I think here he's talking about when you're in this true flow of your work, that, you know, really wonderful zone where the only voices in your head are things saying, sort of just directing you like, oh, I know some more red paint or let's firm up the edge of this shape a little bit, you know, <laughs> like there's just this complete focus and involvement with the process. And this is a state that we all aspire to, we get into it when we can. Um, and in that state, I think you really don't have so many um, voices uh, that opinions that you imagine other people might have. But I don't think many artists can maintain that perfect flow for forever. I mean, for a long time. At some point, even, you know, during each painting session, at least for myself, if I get there, that spell then at some point is broken and you're starting to get tired or something. You come to the end of what you were doing. And so, um, you know, in that moment, then you, then you step back and you say, okay, how would somebody else see what I've done? Um, and, you know, you were talking about having specific viewer in mind. Um, sometimes the, the things that are in our head do come from specific people, but maybe not in a particularly good way. So they're not our ideal viewer. They are just people that have said things to us. And, and in the quote I read you, you know, Gustin mentioned some of those Um such as, you know, your teachers and your critics and so on. Um, but even when you have this actual person in your head, you are only imagining how they would respond to this particular painting. They're not actually there. So you're imagining some conversation based on things they may have said in the past, maybe helpful, maybe not so much. But usually what you're remembering is a particular phrase or some particular conversation that you had. And that may be helpful. It may be a positive thing, but it can also be um, not so good. And in any case, kind of restrictive. You're sort of pigeonholing this person into this particular response. If they're really standing there with you, you'd have a conversation, you know, and, and they might say something and you'd say something back and you'd go somewhere with it. But, you know, if you just have this like one phrase in your head, it's going to it's going to stop there. Um, and sometimes you have, you know, people, actual people in your head that are saying contradictory things <laughs> because because art is pretty subjective. People have different ideas about it. Right. So, um you know, an example from my, my own world is um, I can think of two individual people, actual people, one of whom says, I really like it when your paintings are this sort of atmospheric and, you know, indistinct shapes. And, you know, I really like to get into the mood of that. And another person saying, you know, I think your work is stronger when you use bolder shapes, you know, when you can really see something in there. And so... 
you know, I might be looking at a painting that could go one way or the other and have these two people enter my head and they're saying different things. And it's like, I really do not need them with me in the studio or my imaginary version of them arguing about my work, you know? I mean, I have to tell them to get lost. It's like that. That is very confusing, if you let if you let those conversations in, or not conversations really, but just individual statements that have one particular meaning. Right, and it's we're we're getting away there from from the actual utility of of this as a a device. Um, the uh, the the purpose of having kind of a single individual in mind is is that uh, it it is a conversation then. And it's uh, it's something that's not a you're not trying to to please a crowd you're you're just trying to right. to have that that interaction with a yeah, single they, individual and as as we've t- we talk about very frequently what's personal is what is what is universal yeah yes and I think I have a few thoughts about who that person is um, that I will get to soon. Uh, let's take a minute to talk about what's new from Cold Wax Academy. The summer quarter of Cold Wax Academy's membership program is now underway. Rebecca and Jerry's upcoming weekly live online sessions will explore personal voice and composition and continue the topic of professional development with some special guests. Member critiques and painting clinics, Cold Wax Academy's new feature, are ongoing. You can join the membership program anytime and catch up with past recorded sessions at your own pace. Please visit coldwaxacademy.com for more information. That's coldwaxacademy.com. Also, stay tuned for information coming soon about Rebecca and Jerry's newest project, Espacio, dedicated to providing beautiful living and working spaces for artists and writers. Espacio's first offering is Casa Clavel a modern, fully equipped house opening this September in the beautiful cultural city of San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. You can learn more and make a reservation by emailing info at coldwaxacademy.com. A dedicated Espacio website is coming soon. Once again, to learn more and make a reservation, just email info at coldwaxacademy.com. All right, let's get back into it. Okay, so getting back to imagining your audience, imagining particular people, um, and getting away from this particular people that are people you know and people that have said things to you. Right. Because because they're not actually there to engage you in conversation. What they what those people are doing when they pop into your head, they're representing certain thoughts, they're representing certain attitudes that affect you. They they sort of embody certain kinds of either appreciation or criticism that you yourself feel. You know, this is actually not coming from them. It's coming from you. So, so I think that you have to kind of own those ideas that are sticking in your head and make them work for you, uh, but, but not assign them to anyone but yourself. Um, they may have filtered in from the outside. But if they're going to affect your work, then you have to decide how you feel about them and decide this is something I believe or don't believe. And in the case I mentioned just before the break, where the, I have these two imaginary people commenting on my use of shape, um, 
oftentimes it's kind of meeting in the middle, you know, the, you're pulling these different ideas, and then there's something that embodies, you know, both of those kind of um, those thoughts. So, but getting back to this idea that aside from particular people that you may have had in your life, and imagining the rest of your viewers as sort of this conglomerate anonymous viewer, which I think is what people do tend to do, um, it's really impossible to characterize the range of people that are going to see your work in any place, at any time, in any way. Um, And so what you're saying, I think, is to imagine one person who is kind of the ideal person to be looking at your work. And here's where it got a little bit kind of interesting and funny for me because I started to think about who is that? You know, okay, I'm going to I'm going to give them some characteristics. And so my ideal viewer uh when I thought about it was things like this is a person who is sensitive, who is attuned uh to subtlety, who probably really likes being out in nature and appreciating um uh the landscape. Uh, maybe somebody who's sort of quiet, sort of um, introspective, somebody who's going to take the time to really look at my work and really appreciate my work. So when I think of all this, then I suddenly realized, oh, I think I'm describing myself <laughs> or some ideal version of myself, at least. So then it's like, okay, my imaginary viewer, the person that I want to connect with is myself, <laughs> So it's kind of like this interesting loop, uh, which means really I am making art for myself, but I also believe that there are people out there who share at least some of my own perceptions, my own qualities. And so, you know, it, it seems it seems a little odd when I think about it. Um, is it totally egotistical to think, you know, this is my ideal viewer, somebody just like me, or is that just, it just makes sense, you know, it's because if you're really connected with your work, you're making it for yourself, and you're making it for people, I guess, who are like you. (laughs) So I don't know how that strikes you. Um, It doesn't always work, maybe for different kinds of art. I don't know. Well, I th- I think that that requires a a great deal of um, self knowledge <laughs> to to really um, to to understand who your viewer is if your viewer is someone like you. Um, but I I don't think that that's unreasonable. It it may it may make that uh, imaginary conversation a bit more difficult in a sense because uh, mm. I I would think that you would want to kind of disassociate slightly. I mean, that's, that's the purpose of the exercise really uh, from, from a marketing standpoint is to disassociate from your own biases and to, you know, mm. imagine that you're, you're talking to a, a separate individual. Right. But if the separate individual is going to appreciate my very personal expression I'm not sure how to imagine that person um, as being that different, you know, and maybe that's, maybe that is typical for the creative mind. You're sort of trapped in your own way of seeing things. 
Um, so it, it seems challenging to think outside of that. I don't think that there's anything wrong particularly with um, imagining a person who's very much like yourself. Um, as long as that mm-hmm. person isn't you in a literal sense. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the things I said, somebody who enjoys being out in nature, right. somebody who has a subtle eye, you know. Um, and so, I, yeah, then I can start to imagine a conversation where I might say, you know, I really want this painting to have a lot of subtlety to it. And my imaginary viewer is either saying, yes, uh-huh, I see that. Or, you know, I think you could work on this part a little bit more to get there. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I could see that as being useful to just have somebody who's just like, kind of like you, but a little bit removed, a little bit step back. Well, and I, I think that we tend to be um, a- attracted to people who are like us um, to some extent, uh, but it, mm-hmm. we are all individuals, but so, but most of our friends are going to share common interests and, and common tendencies mm-hmm. and things like that. And so I, I don't think it's, I think maybe a better way of understanding this imaginary person is like an imaginary friend. You know, somebody who mm-hmm. who is very much like yourself in in key ways, yeah. Uh, but uh, isn't isn't you in a literal sense? Okay, so we never really outgrow imaginary friends. <laughs> well, I, I think what we find out <laughs> later in life is that imaginary friends are are somewhat useful. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I have just. I have not really thought about it in these terms. So doing doing this podcast, pulling these things together has been kind of helpful for me because I think as the artist, you need to exert your your own power to say, get out of here. If you're having imaginary people in your studio that you really don't want there, and they're not being all that helpful. Um, and part of saying get out of there is, okay, have you got something interesting to tell me? Maybe you do. And, you know, I'll take note of that. And then I need to incorporate that in my own way. I need to accept it and make it my own. And now you can leave. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's important to to recognize when when the voices that that are or maybe not hopefully not literal voices but the the voices that that were kind of <laughs> these hovering presences. yeah exactly it's important to recognize when they're when they're not useful and to and to rebuke them you know and cast them exactly. out exactly you know? get out yeah. go away <laughs> yeah and you know what have you got to lose they're imaginary anyway you know nobody's going to be upset <laughs> if you yell at them um it's it just amazes me how much power many artists give to I don't know all the things that people have said to them and because you because viewers in real life are so varied you do hear you know you hear them tell you things in real life that are contradictory that are you know point you in different directions that you know, maybe praise things that you don't think you want praised. <laughs> maybe, uh, you know, criticizing things that you feel are perfectly justified. And, you know, I, I, I think about that Gustin quote that I read, where the way, the, the path away from those things, you know, is partly just rebuking them, as we said, but it's also finding that flow for yourself 
where you lose everything, you lose those presences in your life and your studio, you lose your own critical voice for a little while, and you're just painting. And then there's a time when you step back and you can analyze. Um, and, you know, sometimes people say, well, how do you get into that flow? And, you know, that's one thing I don't have a lot of advice about. <laughs> I think it just happens when you put in a lot of time and you get involved in your work. And once you experience it on a regular basis, it becomes easier and easier to get into it because it's part of your practice. It's part of your habit. Um, it can be hard to get there um, if you're struggling, for sure, because then your your own mind is very involved in pros and cons and criticisms and all those things that, you know, part of your own analysis. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it's the nature of anything that we're that we get emotionally involved in where we where we care about it, that, that, that we, we're mm-hmm. going to have doubts and we're going to have, you know, positive and negative voices and we're going to uh there it's it's just it's the nature of of something like this where where you have that attachment to it and maybe that's even a Mm -hmm. a subject for a future podcast is is just Mm -hmm. how emotionally involved do we get in our work because we we need that emotional very much we need that emotional attachment to it and yet it, it can hold us back it can prevent us from taking risks it can lead to these uh kind of self doubts and the, the negative voices mm. and and um and it can it can make us reluctant to to exhibit our work or to or to sell it um and so the the, the our level of emotional attachment seems very tied in with um yeah this subject it's another it's another one of those balancing acts you know <laughs> like becoming totally involved because that's why it's important to do it that's what compels you to do it and also being able to step back and be analytic to try to see it through someone else's eyes um, because if you're showing it, that's where it's heading. And it's that, yeah, I think that's a good topic and it does apply here for sure because that that meaningful involvement is so important. And when, you're, when there's too many other people in the studio with you, imaginary, um, they're they're distracting you and they are diluting the amount of emotion and involvement that you're going to feel with your work. You know, whether they're being positive or negative, they, it's kind of, uh, it's just, you, you're losing track of that intense focus. That is that sort of flow state that, you know, most of us regard as ideal to creativity. Uh, well, do you have any final thoughts to wrap up this episode? I guess going back to the beginning where, you know, and what we were just talking about just now, you make art for yourself. I mean, that makes work, means that your work is personal. It's meaningful. It's, you know, it's very um, important to you to do it in the way that is right for you. And because you're tapping into this deeper level of yourself, um, your work is going to keep growing and unfolding and everything. And you don't you don't want things that are going to hold that back. Um, I think in terms of imaginary friends, you know, finding, finding positive um, presences in your studio 
whether based on actual people, whether based on your ideal person, whatever it is, and trying to tell the more negative ones to go away, <laughs> um, you know, really believing that you're doing your work for you and there will be people who appreciate it. And I think that's kind of the bottom line. All right. Well, that just about wraps up this episode of The Messy Studio. For more from The Messy Studio, please go to MessyStudioPodcast.com and sign up for the email list. You can also find The Messy Studio on Facebook, as well as Rebecca's public profile page. For more from Rebecca Kroll, check out RebeccaKroll.com and Cold Wax Academy at ColdWaxAcademy.com. Be sure to sign up for the email list to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. For more from myself, Ross Tickner, check out RossTickner.com. The Messy Studio is a Tick Digital Media production. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment. Until then, embrace your creative space, messy or otherwise. Thanks, everybody.